peculiar time of the year when it's to know where you are and why you have been kidnapped. Well, the bridge of Sai. The guys who works here went psycho. Welcome to October by May. The short stories of Edward T. May. Presented by James Allen May. I believe I mentioned before that I'm producing these new episodes from aboard a cruise ship, currently traveling back and forth between Seattle and Alaska. We set out from Seattle on Saturdays and make the same four stops in Alaska week after week. My co-workers and I perform the musical Kinky Boots a few times per week. We each have our daily activities and habits, schedules and routines. I'm sure you can relate. Whether you're going to school, working, caring for a family, you surely have some level of repetition in your life. Ernie certainly does. He has just inherited his uncle's home and a job with his uncle's former employer. He wakes every morning attends to his duties, and returns promptly home. Oh, did I forget to mention where his home and job are located? The cemetery, of course. I also forgot to mention the other prominent component of Ernie's life, the bottle. Yes, our Ernie has a deep commitment to intoxication. His entire life consists of waking in a cemetery working in a cemetery, and drinking in a cemetery. Oh, Ernie, if you keep this up, just what will become of you? Becoming. Ernie Whitcomb leaned against the street sign informing him he'd reached a dead end. Beyond the sign sprawled Cedar Grove Cemetery, sprouting crosses and obelisks and headstones, like so many bouquets flaunting their aromatic attributes in unabashed contradistinction to what lay beneath. Ernie glanced to his right, eyeing his late Uncle Jacob's house. Although old, as old as the cemetery, the house had been lovingly maintained over the years. That was Uncle Jacob for you, a stickler for neatness. Everything was always in apple pie order at his house. Good old Uncle Jacob. A firm believer in a place for everything and everything in its place, etc., etc. The house sat squarely in the middle of a neatly trimmed yard with strategically placed flower beds, while around the perimeter, a white picket fence marched with parade ground precision. On the whole, it reminded Ernie of a well-kept cemetery plot, Dead end, Ernie muttered. No truer words. Ernie thought about the advice Murray Riley, the administrator of the halfway house, had given him the day he learned his uncle Jacob had passed away. Ernie, my lad, Murray had said in his endearing Irish accent. This is an opportunity that doesn't come around very often and you've got to make the most of it, me boy. Don't dishonor your uncle by taking what he's built over the years and hand it over to you and wasting it on the drink. I've spoken with the groundskeeper at Cedar Grove. It took some finagling to get you a position, but you know by now I'm a mighty good finagler. Mind you, it's not the same job your uncle had. After all, he worked there for 32 years, but it's a start. 
It's a foothold. You can climb back into society now that you've got a job, a house, a car. You've got a new life, lad. Don't drink it all away. Murray had said these words with a sense of urgency, conviction, verve. Murray was like that. Murray took life too seriously. Ernie shouldered the duffel bag containing his worldly possessions, which amounted to little more than stained underwear and threadbare socks, and trudged across the street to the front gate of his Uncle Jacob's house. My house, Ernie thought. The thought felt strange as it rattled around in Ernie's head. Bees bobbed around the late summer flowers with economy of motion and business-like vibrations, while butterflies frolicked in their distinctive giddy flight to nowhere. Petunias and snapdragons melted and blurred in the heat, in shameless imitation of impressionist artwork. Marigolds painted broad brushstrokes of perfumed air against the cerulean sky. Ernie breathed it all in as he unlatched the gate, walked to the porch, and climbed the steps. One, two, three... He counted automatically, unconsciously, and then laughed when he realized what he was doing. (laughs) Just like Murray told me to take life, one step at a time. Ernie fished the key out of his pocket and opened the door. The house was cool and dark and smelled of nostalgia. Ernie dropped his duffel just inside the entryway, glad to be rid of his burden and relieved to be out of the heat and glare of an August afternoon. He surveyed his new possession. The stairway to the upper floor was directly in front of the entry. A grandfather clock ticked away unconcernedly in a recess next to the stairwell. To his right, a room with a fireplace, bookshelves, sofa, chair, hardwood floor, windows looking out on the front and side yards. His aunt and uncle had called it a sitting room, which Ernie had always found an amusing name. So quaint, so old-fashioned, and, when you came right down to it, rather silly. After all, who'd ever heard of a standing room or a walking room? Ernie slowly walked past the stairs, noting a bathroom on his left, and entered the kitchen located at the rear of the house. Retracing his steps to the stairway, he ascended to the second floor, where he found the bedroom and another bathroom. Obviously, the bathroom had not been an original part of the house, but rather added on over the course of the years. (laughs) I know how that is, Uncle Jacob. Those midnight visits to the downstairs bathroom must have gotten old in a hurry, Ernie commiserated. The bedroom was sparsely but comfortably furnished. A cedar chest rested against the foot of the bed, A nightstand and a chair stood on either side of the bed, and a chest of drawers occupied the opposite wall. A mirror hung above the chest of drawers, while the other three walls sported a variety of landscape paintings. The bed was covered in a homemade quilt. It was Ernie's house now, but it would always be Uncle Jacob's home. Ernie accepted the fact he owned a house, but he wasn't sure he could have a home. He wasn't sure at all. Not after what his wife had done, leaving for no reason, leaving him to wonder why. When he couldn't figure out a reason, the drinking had begun. Soon after that, he lost his job, his friends, his house, his home. At least he knew why he lost them, and he could comfort himself, in a manner of speaking, with that thought. Cold comfort, but comfort nonetheless. Anyway... Home just didn't have the same connotation anymore. 
It never would. It never could. Ernie wandered back down the stairs and into the kitchen. He quickly scanned the contents of the refrigerator and then began an inspection of the cupboards. He made a mental note to visit the supermarket as he pulled some stale crackers off one shelf and a bottle of whiskey from another. He examined the label on the bottle and caressed the neck as Murray's words echoed in his head. You've got a new life, lad. Don't drink it all away. I like the old life, Murray. No disrespect intended. It's comfortable. It fits, Ernie said as he pulled the cork and took a swallow. After paring a few slices from a brick of cheddar, Ernie took the cheese, the stale crackers, and the bottle of whiskey into the sitting room. He placed the food on the coffee table. Taking the bottle with him, he turned his attention to the bookcases. He cocked his head and read the spines one at a time, occasionally taking a sip from the bottle. He spied an album of photographs on the top of one of the bookcases. Curious, he took the album and eased his body down on the sofa to inspect the pictures. Ernie recognized many of his relatives and even came across a few pictures of himself. Most of the photographs depicted his Aunt Margaret and Uncle Jacob, along with their dog, Socks. As Ernie turned a page near the end of the album, a slip of paper fell from between two of the leaves. Ernie examined the paper, finding a short verse written in his uncle's ragged script. I'm becoming Margaret. Margaret's becoming me. Socks and I are becoming. What an odd group, we three. A poet laureate you ain't, Ernie observed uncharitably. Just doggerel, and average at that. At first, Ernie was mystified by the little rhyme. What was all this talk of becoming? Becoming what? He looked through the album again. Beginning with the first page, he carefully considered each picture. One picture, not more than a year old, showed Socks, a wire-haired terrier, and Ernie's uncle together. Uncle Jacob's head sported short, springy hair, and the whiskers on his face were trimmed such that they drooped around the sides of his mouth. Though shorter than average height, Jacob had always possessed a physical toughness along with a feisty temperament. Ernie remembered his uncle's firm handshake and how powerful his wiry muscles seemed. Wiry muscles, Ernie mused, his thoughts free-flowing. Wiry. Wiry. Dog roll. Dog. Wire-haired. He looked again at dog and master. The short, springy hair, whiskers, physical stature, it all matched. They looked alike. That is, as much as an animal and a human can look alike. After marveling at the similarity between Socks and his uncle, Ernie turned to a group of pictures at the front of the album, showing his aunt and uncle on their wedding day. He then found a photograph of a party celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. He flipped back and forth between the two sets of photos a number of times. The newly wedded groom looked like a younger version of his counterpart in the picture from the 50th wedding anniversary celebration, just as Aunt Margaret, the new bride, looked like a younger version of Aunt Margaret who'd been married for 50 years. It was obvious the handsome young groom and his blushing bride did not resemble each other in the least. Yet, the physical similarity between the old Jacob and the old Margaret was nothing short of uncanny. But it wasn't just superficialities. Gray hair and glasses, for instance. 
It seemed to Ernie that cheekbones and noses were structured differently. How could that be? In the past, Ernie had heard people comment on how husbands and wives tended to grow alike in appearance as they aged, but he'd never really given the concept much thought. Nor had he ever thought to compare older couples while they were in his presence to see if the notion was true. This train of thought presently derailed as Ernie began thinking about his own wife. Had his wife stayed, would they have grown to resemble each other? He would never know, because she was gone and wasn't coming back. Ernie took another pull on the bottle, munched on some crackers and cheese, then washed the remnants down with another swig. As the minutes passed, Ernie accomplished far more swigging than munching. He eventually fell asleep on the sofa and dreamed of his wife. She leaned over him as he slept, attempting to deliver a kiss of penitence. A single kiss, one destined to remove all the pain of the past. Ernie quivered with anticipation, but instead of warm, moist, soft lips pressing against his own, Ernie felt a cold, smooth, hard surface and woke to find his lips wrapped around his whiskey bottle. He also woke with a hangover. He was on familiar ground there. Surprised to find it was morning already, Ernie quickly made two slices of blackened toast, washed them down with black coffee, and stumbled off to his new job. He also made a mental note to visit the supermarket. After a morning of cutting grass and adjusting sprinkler heads, Ernie's hangover disappeared in a sweat. A short lunch, and then it was more of the same in the afternoon, coupled with the arduous task of grave digging. Ernie made it home that evening hardly knowing which end was up. It had been a long time since he'd done any more than a token amount of physical labor. He quickly cobbled together a sandwich out of the meager supplies available. Ugh... Gotta get some groceries, he mumbled, but not now. I've just got to rest for a while. He took his sandwich, grabbed the depleted bottle of bourbon he'd suckled on the previous evening, and adjourned to the sofa in the sitting room. As he twisted the cork upwards, he delighted in the distinctive squeaky noise it made, and then there was the silly-sounding clump as the cork finally came free of the bottle, and then the long swig, and... Oh... Damn, didn't that taste good? Not having the energy to move, Ernie was content to sit and take in the details of his surroundings. The grandfather clock ticked away in its cozy niche, its three bronze weights nearly at their limit of travel. The shiny circular pendulum reflected the front door. The bright face with hour and minute hands, numerals and manufacturer's names stared back at Ernie in disgust. Or was it mockery? Ernie couldn't tell for sure, and didn't care. Ernie toasted the clock with the tip of the bottle and turned his attention to the stone fireplace with its broad oak mantle. A picture of his aunt, his uncle, and socks anchored one end of the mantle and was offset by a cameo of appropriate size on the other end. Between these two items, a trio of porcelain cottages had been neatly arranged. Taken as a whole, it was tasteful and appropriate, that was Aunt Margaret for you, forever knowledgeable about the arcane mysteries associated with interior decorating. Over the mantle, a shotgun was mounted, and above the shotgun, a startled pheasant winged away in taxidermic flight. Ernie's eyes returned to the shotgun. 
He'd done some hunting in his time, before, well, before. Ernie liked to call it his previous existence. His curiosity eventually overcame his lethargy, and he struggled out of the plush confines of the sofa. He staggered over to the fireplace and examined the gun. A hunting scene was carved into the walnut stalk, depicting a dog flushing a pheasant from a cornfield. Decorative scrollwork, etched into the metal, snaked along the barrel. Ernie nodded his head in approval. He replaced the gun and moved across the room to one of the bookcases. Ernie spied a volume of Poe and found it an appropriate choice of reading material. After all, he lived next to a cemetery and worked in a cemetery. He took it back to the sofa and made himself comfortable. Starting at the front cover, he began leafing through the pages one by one. He enjoyed the feel of the paper. The accumulated smells, once trapped between the pages, seeped forth again as he released them from their imprisonment. He noticed a scrap of paper wedged near the spine of the tome, apparently an ad hoc bookmark. He turned to the page so marked and removed the fragment of paper, glancing at it as he did so. It appeared to be more of his uncle's poetry. Ernie's brain was already becoming muddied by alcohol, and the words made little sense. He turned his attention to the book. After reading some pages at random, he came across a poem his uncle had evidently found special, for he'd circled a few of the lines. The fever called living is conquered at last. Ernie, too, found the sentiments to his liking. He raised the bottle in Poe's honor and took a sip, quickly followed by another sip in honor of his uncle. He proceeded to make a concerted effort to dedicate the lines to memory, and failed. That night, Ernie managed to make it to bed and peel off his clothing before he passed out. He once again dreamed his wife came to his bedside and leaned over to kiss him as he slept. And once again, it was not soft, warm, moist lips which Ernie felt. A cold, hard, seemingly polished surface sought his lips. And when Ernie, in his dream, opened his eyes, he found he was kissing the fleshless skull of a figure reminiscent of the Grim Reaper. Ah! Ernie woke with a hangover. Ernie hadn't the foresight to close the curtains before going to sleep and was rousted from his bed by an impossibly bright sun. He rolled out from under the blanket, splashed water on his face, and dressed. His head throbbed. He breakfasted on cold, black coffee and canned peaches and made yet another mental note to visit the supermarket. He shuffled across the dewy lawn of the backyard and into the cemetery. All day, Ernie trimmed bushes, trees, and the grass around headstones. In the evening, he went home. Home to his bottle. Ever and always, there was the bottle. He was willing to give the job a try, but giving up the bottle was too much to ask for. Giving up the bottle was out of the question. As the days passed, Ernie became used to the work. He even found a certain amount of comfort in the routine. The predictable nature of the job seemed to make the work easier. He began taking note of his surroundings. The cemetery was very old, and Ernie enjoyed what he considered the quaint epitaphs. He loved reading about all the devoted husbands and beloved mothers, and those who feared God above all else. 
During his breaks, he would wander along the pathways shaded by towering oaks, cedars, elms, and maples. He developed a habit of carrying a small notepad in his shirt pocket and writing down epitaphs that struck him as particularly interesting or memorable. After work, Ernie would explore his new house or read a selection from his uncle's bookcase or clean and polish the shotgun positioned so prominently over the fireplace. Ernie never tired of running his fingers along the intricate scrollwork etched into the barrel. He found it soothing, almost therapeutic. He built a routine of little things, simple things. He enjoyed what the routine offered to him, and he wasn't bothered by the modest requirements necessary to maintain such a routine. A symbiotic relationship developed between man and method. It was during one of Ernie's explorations he found a smaller photo album, apparently assembled by his uncle. It was comprised of a series of pictures depicting Ernie's aunt and uncle from their earliest years together, up to the year his aunt died. The pictures were arranged chronologically, one picture per page, each picture showing only his aunt and uncle. Ernie was at a loss to explain why his uncle Jacob would compile such an album until he noticed some tiny writing at the bottom of each photo. Every picture was labeled with the word becoming, except the last, which bore the caption, become. You were really obsessing over this, weren't you? Ernie said aloud, shaking his head. So you and Aunt Margaret looked more and more like each other as you got older, so what? Rumor has it a lot of couples start to resemble each other as they age. Is that a bad thing? Ernie couldn't understand his uncle's fixation, but he would. Murray came to visit a few weeks after Ernie had discovered the photo album. Ernie reluctantly showed Murray into the sitting room. Murray was quick to notice a whiskey bottle sitting on the table. He chose to ignore it for the time being and picked up the photo album instead. He flipped through the pages quickly, almost carelessly. They're a matching pair for certain. Isn't it grand? Murray asked, his eyes sparkling. Ernie, though amazed at how quickly Murray had apparently grasped the significance of the album, feigned ignorance. His silence became a question. I mean how your dear aunt and uncle grew more and more alike as they shared their lives. In this last picture here, they almost looked like they could be brother and sister. The own parents were the same way. Ernie managed to remain unmoved by this statement as well. He knew from experience if he showed an inch of interest in Murray's observations, he was destined to travel at least a bumpy mile over Murray's ramblings. He simply wanted to be left alone. He simply wanted to drink. But Murray, being Murray, pretended otherwise. Murray had a way of seeing things that weren't there. Murray had probably seen leprechauns on at least one occasion, and now Murray imagined he saw Ernie's eyes fly open in surprise. Ah, I can see by your expression you didn't know that. Now did you? Ernie didn't bother to respond. Of course he didn't know that bit of trivia concerning Murray's parents. How would he know anything about Murray's parents? But Murray was not offended in the least by Ernie's silence. Murray somehow managed to interpret Ernie's reluctance to engage in dialogue as a desire for enlightenment, and Murray was certainly ready to accommodate Ernie on that score, as he promptly continued his narration in his same old upbeat manner. That was Murray for you. Every year on me mother's birthday, me father would say to her, Grow old along with me, the best is yet to be. Ah, such beautiful words. 
Not fancy, mind you, but still beautiful for all of that. I grew up thinking me father was a literary genius. That is, until I went to school and found out it was a man by the name of Robert Browning wrote those lines. And him an Englishman, no less. Murray shook his head as he uttered the final sentence, obviously dismayed by the revelation. Ernie nodded solemnly and hoped the minimal response wouldn't encourage Murray to walk any further down memory lane. You're back at it, then. Murray clucked as he inclined his head in the direction of the whiskey bottle. You're in a prison, lad. A prison of glass, and the cork is the key. No lectures, Murray, just this once, please, Ernie thought. Just call me an alcoholic or a drunk. Better yet, just give up on me. But there's a bit of irony there, lad, Murray continued. You're not only the prisoner, you're the jailer as well. You think about that now. You can release yourself from your own prison at any time you want. Murray gave the album to Ernie instead of placing it on the table where he'd found it. A significant gesture, apparently, or so Ernie thought. Still and all, isn't it grand? He said, referring to Ernie's aunt and uncle. How a sharing of the inner life transforms the outer self. That was Murray for you, forever the romantic, reciting poetry and whatnot. Murray left, and Ernie drank. Ernie woke with a hangover, and drank to get over it. He drank through August and into September. September brought a magic mix of weather, as weeks alternated between summer swelter and autumn chill. October ushered in the bite of autumn in earnest, and refused to countenance any form of Indian summer. Ernie found himself awash in brittle, frosted leaves, and whiskey-sodden nightmares. Always curious as to what it might be like to spend Halloween night in a cemetery, Ernie capped off the month by passing out in a drunken stupor near the mausoleum and nearly freezing to death. He stumbled back to the house on numbed feet and stiff legs, barely managing to start a blaze in the fireplace before passing out once again. Despite his addiction to the bottle, Ernie managed to make it to work on time and remain sober while on the job. In fact, Ernie found he actually wanted to keep his position at the cemetery. It seemed to him a good fit with the rest of his life. One might even say, natural. Any other job might have been too demanding, tempting him to quit, or too easy, tempting him to drink on the job and risk getting fired. And, as Ernie himself noted, being an alcoholic, he already had one foot in the grave. So, working in a cemetery was a big time saver. On a miserably cold day in November, while Ernie waited for the completion of a graveside memorial in a part of the cemetery he rarely worked, he noticed a headstone he hadn't seen before. The stone obviously bore more than the occupant's name, date of birth, and date of death. Ernie wandered over to the unfamiliar grave as the priest droned on in the background about life and death and so forth. Ernie was amazed to find the epitaph was the same verse he'd read from the book by Poe in his uncle's house. Ernie was even more amazed when he looked at the name on the stone. It was none other than Jacob Whitcomb. Having never been to his uncle's funeral, Ernie was unaware he'd been buried in Cedar Grove Cemetery, although it made perfect sense. After all, He'd worked there for 32 years. Ernie's sense of shame at having missed his uncle's funeral 
and ignorance as to the whereabouts of his gravesite was secondary to his surprise at finding such an epitaph on his uncle's tombstone. Uncle Jacob had always struck him as a very positive, cheerful person, the very image of an optimist. Yet the epitaph he'd chosen for himself was anything but enthusiastic about life. Why the change? What had happened to his Uncle Jacob to create such a radical transformation in his outlook? It was shortly after this incident that Ernie began to notice a distinct loss of appetite. He would go days without eating lunch. A few weeks later, he became aware his loss of appetite was coupled with a diminished desire for liquids as well. However, knowing that alcohol could do strange things to a person's body, Ernie wasn't overly concerned about the situation. Ernie soldiered on through the worst winter that area had seen for a hundred years. He felt suffocated by swirling snow during the day and came close to drowning in alcohol at night. When he finally came up for air, he was shocked to find spring in full bloom. He also found he could now skip two meals a day without noticing. Offsetting this disturbing condition was the fact he'd stopped having the bizarre nightmares concerning his wife. As a matter of fact, he quit having any nightmares. Nor did he have any dreams, at least none he could remember. Strange days. One fine spring day, while exploring the basement, Ernie found an unopened case of whiskey. Knowing his uncle did not make a habit of indulging in liquor, being strictly a social drinker, Ernie realized the whiskey must have been a present. Judging by the thick layer of accumulated dust on the case, he deduced the whiskey had been sitting undisturbed for years. It was good quality bourbon, and Ernie figured it would last him for about a month. A few days later, Ernie was shocked to discover he'd gone an entire day without thinking of his wife. The event was unprecedented. Every day since his wife had left him, he'd thought about her. He couldn't help it. At times, it seemed he never stopped thinking about her. But now, now he'd gone a whole day. And then, like lightning striking twice and thrice in the same place, he managed, without the least effort on his part, to go two days and then three without thinking of her. He began losing all desire to resume a relationship with his wife. He simply didn't care anymore. Strange days indeed. It would have been the perfect time for Ernie to quit drinking. Since he no longer cared for his wife, the original basis for his alcoholism no longer existed. In addition, along with other drinkables, he'd actually lost all desire for alcohol. But Ernie, being Ernie, drank anyway. The drink had become an end in itself. No motivation or justification required. Instant pastime, just add alcohol. Ernie was convinced he'd cheated himself out of a memorable experience the night of All Hallows' Eve when he'd passed out in the cemetery. So, exactly six months after Halloween, he decided a reprise of sorts was in order. The night of April 30th beckoned him with bony, crooked finger to share its limitless darkness. Walpurgis Night, the night witches traditionally celebrated their Sabbath, spiritual twin of Halloween, calendrical counterweight, to October 31st. His survival pack for the evening consisted of the last bottle from the case of bourbon in the basement and a flashlight. As the last rays of sunlight disappeared, Ernie found a comfortable spot on the step of a family mausoleum. Ernie took a sip of bourbon 
and watched as darkness crept across the uneven ground toward his feet, leaving some areas in a dim half-light while others became cloaked in jet. He took another sip. He zipped his jacket against the growing cold of a spring evening, the sound of the zipper raw and jarring in the silent graveyard. He took another sip. The impish shadows had engulfed his lower legs and began tugging at his knees, inching upward over his body, swallowing him whole like a python. He couldn't remember when he'd last changed the batteries and decided he should check the flashlight before it got any darker. He thumbed the switch and illuminated the headstone directly in front of him. Joseph Black, 1873 to 1928. Ernie switched the light off and took another sip. He corked the bottle. Then in the darkness, an urgent rustling sound ensued as Ernie fumbled for the flashlight. The light came on again. Ernie held the bottle up and squinted at the label. Joseph Black Distilleries, established 1873. That's quite a coincidence, Ernie whispered. He inspected the whiskey label and epitaph once again to make sure he'd read both of them correctly. He wondered if any relationship existed between the Joseph Black buried under the tombstone and the founder of Joseph Black Distilleries. Whether related or not, he felt a toast was in order. Ernie removed the cork, raised the bottle in a silent salute to the occupant of the grave, as well as the distiller, and took a sip. He shook his head as he placed the cork back in the bottle. Quite a coincidence, he reiterated. Ernie adjusted his position on the step of the mausoleum. As he steadied himself against the door, his right hand discovered a design incised in the limestone lintel. His fingers idly traced the lines. Once, twice, three times. The pattern was familiar. He'd felt it before, but not at this mausoleum. Where? He retraced the loops and lines and scrolls and swirls yet again. When at last he was able to resurrect the memory, his hand jerked away in a spasm of surprise. He struggled upright, turned around, and shined a beam of light on the name of the tomb's occupant. Faithful wife and devoted mother, Catherine Brock, 1889 to 1957. Ernie backed away a few paces. He'd never known Catherine Brock, but the design he'd just felt on her tomb was the same design as the one etched into the barrel of his uncle's shotgun. The same loops and lines and scrolls and swirls he'd felt dozens of times as he cleaned and caressed the firearm. He was confused, and the alcohol he'd imbibed certainly wasn't making the situation any more intelligible. One coincidence was just that, a coincidence. But two of them, back to back, went deeper than coincidence. He wanted to find out how deep, and since the bottle of bourbon and the shotgun had come from his uncle's house, Ernie decided that would be a good place to begin his search for an answer. He turned around and staggered through the darkness. After stumbling between tombstones and trees, among darkness and the dead, Ernie arrived at his uncle's house. He opened the door and went immediately to the fireplace. He stared at the shotgun in something resembling superstitious awe for a few minutes before removing it from its perch. There was no mistake about it. The design on the barrel matched that of the tomb he'd just felt. What did it mean?
Ernie carefully moved his fingers along the hunting scene of the stock, like a blind man hoping to find answers in Braille. His eyes sought out the pheasant above him as his fingers investigated the pheasant carved into the walnut. What did it mean? Ernie slowly replaced the gun, and as he did so, caught sight of the serial number. He quickly retrieved the gun with trembling hands. KB-1889-1957. He read in a shaky voice. That's... (laughs) I don't believe it. Ernie pulled out his little notebook and began flipping feverishly through the pages. And there, among all the God-fearing husbands and beloved daughters, he found it. Catherine Brock, 1889 to 1957. What the hell? Ernie muttered. What the hell's going on? An image slithered out of Ernie's memory and coiled itself tightly about his consciousness. The image of a scrap of paper. The words on the paper had seemed meaningless at the time. Ernie had told himself it was just more of his uncle's nonsensical poetry. But now, things once seemingly meaningless had suddenly gained a new prominence. Simple things like the design on the barrel of a shotgun and its serial number. A magic instant had come and gone, and suddenly nothing could be taken for granted. Nothing could be ignored. Everything seemed to be a secret cipher imbued with mystical knowledge. Ernie felt something big was on the way, and he sensed it was coming down the tracks directly at him. And he was right. Where had he seen that scrap of paper? He rubbed the stubble on his chin. His jaw muscles tightened and relaxed. He closed his eyes and concentrated, trying his best to think past the alcohol he'd consumed earlier. Oh, Poe, he finally shouted. He moved slowly toward the bookcase, excited by the prospect of uncovering a secret, and yet dreading the knowledge that selfsame secret would reveal. He removed the volume dedicated to the works of Edgar Allan Poe and fumbled through the pages until the scrap of paper was revealed. He plucked it out and read the first sentence. The house is becoming like the cemetery. Ernie's head began to swim and his chest tightened. He read the rest. No appetite, no thirst, no desires. I'm becoming like them. How long till I've become? Before, Ernie assumed the words had been a half-hearted attempt at poetry, but now, now they took on a completely different meaning. He searched the pages of the volume for more notes, Finding none, he turned to the front of the book. Published by P. Williams and Son. First printing, 1911. Second printing, 1937. Ready to close the book and place it back on the shelf, he paused, hands shaking. He wanted desperately to be wrong, but the combination of letters and numbers on the page sparked a memory, a memory in the same league as Joseph Black and Catherine Brock. And once again, Ernie pulled out his notepad and rifled through the pages. Paul Williamson, a man who feared God above all. Born, 1911. Died, 1937. And finally, at long last, Ernie was cursed with the light of understanding. Like an old married couple, Ernie said. This house and everything in it along with... 
along with the cemetery. They're just like an old married couple, like a dog and its owner. They've been together for so long, they're changing, becoming like each other. Becoming. Familiarity doesn't breed contempt. Familiarity breeds similarity. Ernie now understood his uncle's obsession. Initially, Jacob hadn't taken the subject seriously. The first poem he'd written had been light-hearted, humorous. Then things changed. Literally, things started becoming. The lines on the little scrap of paper Ernie held in his hands were not light-hearted, but ominous, sinister, prescient. The later photo album wasn't assembled in a fit of nostalgia. It was empirical proof of the entire process. Ernie felt sick. He reread his uncle's writing. No appetite, no thirst, no desires. I'm becoming like them. How long till I've become? Ernie didn't have to wonder who his uncle meant by them. He turned his head in the direction of the darkened cemetery, where all of them had been laid to rest under the sprouting crosses and obelisks and headstones. They had no appetite, no thirst, no desires. They didn't have nightmares or dreams. They didn't think about wives deserting in the dead of night without a word of explanation. Ernie also realized why his happy-go-lucky uncle insisted on having such a pessimistic epitaph chiseled into his headstone. The fever called living is conquered at last. Of course Jacob felt that way. Anyone would feel that way after being reduced to the status of a living corpse. His dying saved him from a living death. Ernie didn't know what to do. What really could he do? He could only take another drink of whiskey and echo the words of his departed uncle. How long till I've become? Once again, I'm James Allen May, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of October by May. October by May is a bi-weekly podcast So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single sojourn into October. Please leave us a rating and review, as well as any comments or replies that you may have for us. Also visit us at OctoberByMay.com for more info, as well as links to the books by Edward T. May. Becoming by Edward T. May The role of Murray was voiced by Larry Alexander. Recitation and audio design by James Allen May. Theme by Hassan Nazari Rabadi.